Hello. Please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Sam Raimi presents a simple Spider-Man plan three. Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table, discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 or seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas, and I, just, I can't live with this shit, man. I, I just can't. I can't live with this shit. And I'm Thomas Mariani, and dig on this. <laughs> I knew it. You like my haircut, Adam? You like my hairdo and how I'm strutting around my stuff? Yeah, man. Real cool. Especially yeah. for today's today's standards. Oh, so boy. cool. I'm, I'm, it's the nostalgia for that 2007 era cool, baby. Where jazz was the hippest. <laughs> yes, James Brown. Everyone loved all the kids who listened to James yep. Brown and the twist. Uh, well, welcome everybody to The Double Edge Devil Bill, where every week Adam and I cover a randomly selected good and bad feature we picked at the end of the previous episode. And uh, this week's topic's very interesting, Adam, because we're doing uh, a a topic we've done before, and also it's the first time we've uh, done another one on a specific person in the film industries uh, as a topic a second time, because we're doing Sam Raimi, given uh, for the first time in about a decade... He's releasing a new film with uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Oh, yeah. Totally a Sam Raimi movie, too. Yeah. Yeah. I saw a very sad interview where Bruce Campbell was talking about, like, oh, you know, with Marvel, like, people just come up to my buddy Sam and are just telling him, like, oh, to get rid of certain things and reshoot for that to fit their storylines. And it's like, oh. Big shocker. Big, big shocker. Not a shocker, yeah. But I don't know. A lot of people are excited, and I'm happy for you. But I'm I'm really yeah. out on the Marvel stuff right now. I, I just kind of hit a wall personally with that. Yeah, I'm pretty much checked out to you, man. Like I, I I gave Moon Knight a solid chance, and I tapped out at the end of episode three. I'm good. Yeah, I haven't even bothered with Moon Knight or the Hawkeye. I didn't even bother with myself. Um, but... Hawkeye was good. Okay, it was pretty good. I'll take your word for it. Um, but yeah, I mean, even with the movies, I'll probably see it at some point. Just cause it's a Sam Raimi movie. I'll see it at some point, but I'm not rushing, basically, to see it this weekend. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. But it still gives us a good excuse to talk about Sam Raimi again, because we talked about Sam Raimi way back in episode 24 of the show, uh, where we talked about Darkman and Drag Me to Hell as part of like a October spooky season because his birthday's in October. Uh, but he's definitely one of those guys where we probably won't go back to every sort of person we've dedicated an episode to um, as a topic, but Sam Raimi is more than worthy. Oh, 100%, dude. I mean, Sam Raimi shaped a lot of people who are genre lovers in our age range, shaped their tastes. I mean, the guy's responsible for bringing, you know, sort of genre films to the mainstream in such a such a profound way, really. Yeah, for sure. And it's so interesting just seeing the evolution of literally making the Evil Dead in the backwoods of Michigan. 
and getting to the point of like doing the other Evil Dead movies and going through the sort of weird Hollywood system he did in the 90s in particular and then getting to make Spider-Man just revolutionizing blockbuster cinema in a completely new and different way. Despite the fact that he's coming back with like a Doctor Strange here and I'm kind of disappointed about that. At the same time, it feels good to see that he's actually still directing things because the last one was also great and powerful and we're not covering that as a bad pick. But um, that would have been a bad note if he had, like, retired on that, basically, and just kept producing after that point. I'm sure Doctor Strange, whatever problems we have with it, it, it can at least be better than Oz the Green Powerful. And, yeah, and it's going to make a fuckload of money. Yes. I mean, so in that aspect, I'm kind of happy about it because I hope it does make money, and I hope it gives him sort of, you know, the opportunity to do more things that he might be a little bit more interested in doing his way. You know, like a James Wan Aquaman situation. Right. Yeah. The sort of guarantor for like a, a special small thing, like sort of he can do like another Dragon Me to Hell potentially, another smaller yeah. scale sort of genre thing. But we're talking about two films specifically, uh, one of which is a big blockbuster that he directed, uh, but the other one is an interesting smaller film because at the end of our last episode, uh, you had the two good picks. We ended up with A Simple Plan, which we'll talk about first, and then I have the two bad picks, and we'll be talking about Spider-Man 3 as the bad pick later on. But first, let's talk about A Simple Plan. Look at all them birds. Those things are always waiting on something to die so they can eat it, right? What a weird job. That's an airplane. I wonder how long it's been here. It's probably one of those drunk doctors. Yeah, they're always crashing their plane, you know? Oh, my God, look at this. Those are $100 bills. I bet it's drug money. You know what? If this guy's a dope dealer, we're just like Robin Hood. What if we didn't turn it in? It's stealing. It's the American dream and a gym bag. He just wants to walk away from it. I want my share. Plan was to sit on the money oh, till we on, decide man. that come it's on, safe to keep. It's like there's two sides now. We're all in this together, man. From now on, we have to be thinking ahead all the time. You think you can take us out there? Can you tell us what this is all about? Looking for a plane. I'm taking the money back right now. You gotta get out of there. Don't move! Put the gun down! Jack, don't turn your back! So Simple Plan uh, came out in 1998 uh, from Raimi, of course, as the director. And uh, the writer was a guy named Scott Smith, uh, which he wrote the novel this is based on. And the fascinating thing about this movie is that it is very much unlike what Raimi had done previously. Because uh, this is like 1998, so this is him coming off of The Quick and the Dead, which was uh, more of like a studio, like bigger cast uh, Western movie. And uh, this is uh, him getting to do a smaller scale drama, which he had never done before and hasn't really done since as much. But it's interesting because he wasn't the original director who was hired. This movie was in production from like 1993 and had a lot of bigger directors that were like attached to it. Like Mike Nichols was going to do it initially. And then he left and Ben Stiller was actually going to direct it. One of his earlier films it would have been. And then John Borman was like attached to the point where he scouted the locations that were featured in this movie and then left, and then the studio was left, oh, fuck, we need a director of some sort. And Raimi came in so last minute to direct that he literally took, like, the locations Borman scouted. So he came in in a pinch to make this movie. And uh, I gotta say, despite all of, like, those, you know, potential shortcomings, like him coming in last second, all this other stuff, uh, he made a great fucking movie with this, I would argue. And Adam, given this is your good yeah. pick, I think you would argue the same. Oh, fuck yeah, dude. This movie's 
fucking fantastic, dude. Describe it to people and everything. People might think it's a, even a different type of movie than it is. Like it sounds like it's like almost like a mystery suspense, and I'd argue very suspenseful. But there's no mystery about what it is. There's many twists and turns up until the, like the end, for the most part. It's just it's about these three guys just sort of self-destructing over this giant secret that they have and just sort of how much male ego can get in the way and things like that. Yeah. If you're unaware of what this movie is, uh, basically it takes place in Minnesota and it follows a bunch of people live in this small Minnesota town, uh, mainly Bill Paxton, who plays our protagonist, who is married to Bridget Fonda, who has a baby on the way. Um, and he often pals around with uh, his brother, uh, played by Billy Bob Thornton, and uh, his brother's friend, Lou, played by uh, Brent Briscoe. And the three of them, at one point, are uh, going off to visit the grave of uh, Billy Bob Thornton and Bill Paxton's parents. When um, they're driving back, they see a fox on the road, and Billy Bob Thornton actually runs into a tree, and Billy Bob Thornton's dog gets out of the truck, and they chase after the dog, and while they're chasing after the dog, they come across a crashed plane. And they dig around, they see a dead body of the pilot, and also a big bag that is filled with $4.4 million. Which they decide, you know what, instead of reporting this to the police, let's uh, go ahead and take it, and divide amongst ourselves, and we'll be set for life, and no one's going to miss this money at all, we'll be totally fine. And as you mentioned, uh, their uh, sort of clashing personalities and bits of paranoia and all this other stuff really start to build as uh, this money weighs on their conscience. Yeah, because they don't they don't outright split it right off the bat. But the whole idea is that Bill Paxton tells them the only way I'll do it is if I can hold on to the money, we'll wait till springtime when the snow thaws and everything, and people find the plane, and if there's no mention of the money, then we'll go ahead and split it up then. But if at any time there's a mention of the money or anything like that, I'm going to burn it all. Right. So, it, I mean, and it literally, they all agree to it. And I think it takes a day or two before, you know, the Lou character's like, I want my fucking money and all this stuff. Like, it, it deconstructs pretty fast. Yeah, it's very much a sort of Coen Brothers-esque Mm-hmm. Um, sort of tale, which is very interesting given the Coens and Raimi were collaborators previously. Like, Joel Cohen got his start as, like, an assistant editor on the original Evil Dead, and they actually lived in a house together. There's a point, literally, where Raimi shared a house with the two Coen brothers, Francis McDormand, and of all other people, their fifth roommate is Kathy Bates. Crazy. Crazy. How weird. Really weird, like, living situation. <laughs> uh, but... Um, yeah, so obviously there was a lot of like those ties, and they've collaborated several times, especially prior to this point. But this feels like definitely him trying to do something a bit more in their style. But at the same time, it doesn't feel like a straight up like riff on like you know uh, Fargo, which would have happened recently prior to this. It feels definitely like it's Raimi's own version of that, which is to say, it's not quite as quirky, which is weird considering Raimi. You would figure he would be more like of a quirky filmmaker, even than the Coens can be but he manages to like make this very stripped down and very emotionally earnest movie that i'm like so underrated i would say of the Raimi filmography uh my favorites are evil dead 2 spider-man 2 and then a really close third is a simple plan like those three display such a great range for Raimi and how just talented a filmmaker he can really be yeah, I, I, I think that's incredibly accurate. You got the zany horror, you got the big blockbuster, and then you got this really small sort of intimate piece. And, uh, you know, not for nothing, yeah, it's a great movie. Bill Paxson's pretty solid in it, but we got to just talk about how good Billy Bob Thornton is in this movie. 
masterful performance from Thornton. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this, along with the screenplay, was also nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. But yeah, uh, Thornton, who plays this character that, like, it's he's out of work, and it's implied that he has some sort of, like, maybe learning disability of some sort that's, like, undiagnosed. It, it feels yeah. like basically he's, like, um, uh, a guy who never quite grew up out of his, like, teenagehood, essentially. And, you know, Bill Paxton kind of, like, is basically playing like a surrogate parent to him after their parents have passed away. And Bill Paxton's the younger brother as well. Right, yes. Uh, yeah. But what I love so much, like the way I would describe Billy Bob's performance in this is he feels like a sad, sentient scarecrow. Yeah, that's accurate. He's a guy who's like walking around through life and he's like aware that he has like, you know, some kind of uh, like things that like hold him back as a person and that he hasn't experienced certain things. But also he's just kind of like existing and not really living as much because of just, like, the tragedy of the where he grew up and how people kind of dismissed him and, like, his self-confidence is so low. There are so many points. Like, particularly, there's a scene, like, near sort of, like, the end of the second act being a third act where him and Bill Paxton talk about, like, what he would do with the money and being like, oh, maybe girls can, like, pay attention to me because, you know, like, the only, the closest person I would have had was, like, Betsy Lou or whoever who was paid off to basically pretend to be my girlfriend. And that's, like, mm-hmm. the one somewhat intimate female relationship he's had in his life. And it's so tragically sad. It's such a beautiful performance from Thornton that's, like, so unlike even a lot of his other performances. Because when you think Billy Bob Thornton, you think kind of, like, wily dude, especially after this, he would really cash on, like, the bad Santa kind of persona. But here it's, like, a really beautiful, intimate, quiet turn from him that is stellar. Oh, yeah, he's he's... He absolutely steals the movie. Every scene he's in, it's it's like such an electric performance. And I mean, he's he's almost screen time equal with Bill Paxton. I mean, Bill Paxton's the lead. You know, I guess if you had to pick out of the two, it's such a good performance. Like you said, the vulnerability that's there, the ultimate sadness that's there. I love the back and forth where it's like, yeah, you get the idea that he might be, you know, maybe developmentally challenged or, or something like that. But then he's clued in on things that Bill Paxton either never realized or doesn't want to accept. Oh, particularly about like the backstory of their dad. The, the yeah, the back right, exactly. The backstory of the dad and, and what happened there, maybe. I mean, you don't know a hundred percent, but just just those type of things where and and you know, the fact that, you know, why do they why do you think they went bankrupt? They had to pay for your college and you know, all that stuff. And Bill Paxton just doesn't he's oblivious to the fact. And it's just it's such a great sort of dynamic to where you know bill paxton uh he's the one got to look after him all the time and all the stuff and, and that probably is true but they show you that he doesn't give his brother enough credit for things right it shows that definitely like because of where billy bob thornton is a sort of like the dismissed brother who's just kind of like the fuck up he is still able to perceive things that bill paxton isn't because he takes the rain so often he's able to see right from behind basically corners that bill paxton doesn't even bother to look at. And I think that's what's great about the whole cast, really, is that because this is, like, a small town where, like, Bill Paxton works at, like, the local, uh, like, workshop for, like... Granary. Yeah, it's granary. granary. Right, right for yeah. granary and stuff like that. It's a very small town. There's a great shot of, like, him coming down the street and it's like, oh, it's, like, you know, shops all the way down the line. He knows, like, the sheriff and all this other stuff. It's so small and intimate that, like, you get the sense of, like, oh, there is so much history behind all these people. Like, they know each other so well that when this new element is introduced, it's so hard for them to hide any of this because everybody knows their bullshit, basically. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And none of them aren't being obvious either. No. Like, it's so obvious. Like, the only one who I'd, I'd say is even, you know, where people would might not even look at him a certain way would be the Billy Bob Thornton character. 
because you know everybody in the town is like oh he's just a fuck up oh he's not working still and blah 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 blah. but like bill paxson the second he starts getting into the shit it's like you can read it all over his face when they drop off lou early on and like they're they're seeing him talk to his wife bill paxson's like oh they're probably he's probably talking and telling her the whole thing i told him not to do that whatever then he immediately goes home and reveals the money to bridget fonda like instantly instantly what an interesting character arc they did with her too yeah right away he's like no i give it back that's stealing you can't keep it oh my god why would you no you can't keep it you can't keep it right when it's presented as a hypothetical yeah and then he presents the money and she starts laugh crying and then you know wakes him up out of bed you know, you got to go put money back there. That way, if they do find it, they'll think that's all it is. Right. Blah, 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 blah. That's what I love so much is that she constantly is trying to plan things. Like, my favorite bit of that is after their daughter is born. And there's a beautiful moment where it's just like, oh, they're holding the baby and they're, like, intimate with each other for a bit. And then within seconds, she's like, you need to make Luke confess about the murder that you did. It's like, oh, what? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. That's Bill Paxson. The classic Bill Paxson. What the hell are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> I just hear the headlights, Bill Paxton. And that's what works so well about his acting because he's, you know, he was a good actor, but I'd argue he was not one of the greats, but his sort of acting capabilities and caliber, uh, it works so perfect for this role because he is a deer in the headlights the entire movie. Right. But also he's so believable as like a blue collar dude who you oh, would yeah. actually talk to and around just like, oh, it's like Bill. We love Bill. We love hanging out with him. He's a nice guy. He's got, you know, his lovely wife and she bookkeeper at the local library and all this other stuff. Like they feel like they would be the intimate couple you would perfectly know. And like they're such sweet people. I, I love hanging around them. And then to, to see this other side of them where Bill Paxton once again is like, oh, I'm so all together, but he's crumbling apart. And Bridget Fonda is like, you need to fucking do what I say or else we're going to be ruined. So fucking do it. It's like, oh, shit. <laughs> it, it just it feels like it's such a great way of like showing so many different sides to these characters it shows that they're actual full three-dimensional people in a way where it feels like they are real like it shows how much an actual hypothetical scenario of like oh you found four and a half million dollars what do you do with it this is what would happen you would be paranoid wrecks about this amount of money that you fucking found in the middle of nowhere oh absolutely it just shows what you would think sort of the three stages would be or the three different characteristics. You got the one guy who doesn't give a fuck. He just wants the money right away so he can party and, and just buy a truck and pay off his bills and do all this stuff. You got the other guy who's kind of like, I want to buy a farm and, you know. Not just any farm, but buy back the farm that like my father ruined. Yeah, yeah buy back the family farm and get it back to you know, succeeding. And the other guy's like, I'm getting the fuck out of town. <laughs> you know. But it's so well done and their dynamic against each other the three of them uh especially it's just it's great and the scene you alluded to too where you know he's trying to get lou to confess what a fucking great scene oh wonderful yeah because it's there's so much just playing once again on the dynamics of the characters where it's so much about like oh bill paxton's trying to like get this and you can tell he's like cracking under the pressure and he thinks billy bob's fucking it up but then he makes that turn we're just like oh he was perfectly setting it up and it's so good. And also, shout out, like, we mentioned those two, but Brent Briscoe is kind of perfect as, like, oh, yeah. a, another, like, fuck-up dude. We're just like, oh, I've se- I know this dude so very well. Oh, yeah. The, oh, yeah. I've, I've come across so many of these big drunk dummies. Oh, believe me, at work, I mean, I, I deal with them every night. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, there I know so many of these guys who just get drunk and can't keep their mouth shut and then... You know, who knows what type of drunk they're going to be that night. If they're going to try to fucking fight somebody or if they're going to cry or like, it's just a hundred percent that guy. 
a hundred percent. And he's got his ball busting wife because she's the only one that works. He doesn't work. And it, it's just, but ultimately what happens to them too is kind of masterful because you get the idea that everybody knows how tired of his shit. She probably was like everybody in the town knows he's the town drunk. His wife is tired of his shit. So, you know, it kind of works in their favor with ultimately what unfortunately happens. Yeah. Shout out to Becky Ann Baker. who's was a great character actor. Some of you might recognize as uh, the mother of the main character from freaks and geeks, which she was yeah. great on. Yeah. She, and she's really good in this movie too. And I think that's a great scene where the, all the chaos happens. Cause like, it's basically, it is pretty much a movie about like, Oh, this is introducing how the lives of all these people completely fall apart as time goes along. And that particular scene is a great example where, Oh, Bill Paxton's trying to mastermind like some kind of thing. Like, all right, how do I get out of this scenario? What do I do? And immediately, the moment like he does a horrible thing and kills Becky Ann Baker, he's like, "Okay, now let me like clean off my prints off of here, and then let me call on this phone and really like work up myself." So stage the guns. Yeah. Oh, oh my God! It's like once again, just shows like what you are willing to do when your ass is so on the line and you want to keep all this money. It's so like upsetting in its own way. That's also just brilliantly constructed. And then how bad you feel about Billy Bob Thornton's character. We sitting down in the, on the stairs and he goes down and tells him all that, you know, this is what we're going to do. And this is how you're going to act. This is the story we got and blah, blah, blah. And then the very next day, like the cop finds him back at that house, just sitting in the chair. Like he's just destroyed. He, he lost his best friend who even, in, even in that moment where, you know, he's, sort of playing along with Bill Paxton and, and helping him get him to confess. But he says the line is like, you know, shit, you're more of a brother to me than he ever was. And you get that. That was true. Like he meant that. And it, you could tell it just devastates him. What a sad, sad ending for everyone, really, but especially for that character. And you get a very big, tell me you didn't get a, a mice and men sort of feel to it as well. Oh, no, 100% that. I mean, I was, like, I forgot how emotionally devastating. Oh, it's devastating. It's right. when, devastating. When when that happens with Billy Bob, it's just like, you know what? You've you got something to live for. I, I don't. It's fine. If you don't do it, I will. It's just like, oh, fuck, man. This is so tragic. You feel like you've gotten to know these people and all their true weird colors as the movie's gone along. To the point where when this happens, and I just even love the fact that all this horrible devastating stuff happens, and technically, Bill Paxton gets away with it, but at the same time, it's like, oh, but you have to live with all this, dude. That's a fucking nightmare, horrible scenario. Just like, yeah, you got away, and you get to like live your shitty life that your wife complained about earlier, but you have to live with all that guilt at the same time. That's weighing on you now. You've lost everybody. It's like such a beautifully haunting ending. Yeah. When it ultimately turns out all for was not, you know, like, oh, just so depressing. But just Billy Bob Thornton's, just his whole speech is just, it's so sad. It's so sad. Like, you know, it's okay. I'm ready to go. I I can't, I don't want to live in the shit. I don't. I, I don't want to live with this. I can't live with it. And it's okay. It's okay. I want you to. I want you to be happy. Just make sure you tell that little girl the bears from me, okay? Oh, like, oh dude. Fuck. Dude. 
You're like, oh no, it's so sad. It's so sad. And not only does it work beautifully for his character, but it sets up perfectly that whole ending element of just Bill Paxton having to live with that for the rest of his life. And also knowing that his wife fucking hates it. Like the scene also where Fonda just says like, oh, you want me to just keep living this life where we go to the same, uh, we, yeah, we got to clip here? coupons every week and whatever, we, whatever dinner we can get. It's because that's the coupons we had this week. Only going to restaurants for like special occasions, then not getting the desserts and coming back here eating desserts. Do you think I want to live like that? And it's like, boy, you're going to have to now. <laughs> yeah, now you got no choice <laughs> because he burned the money. Now, I do want to bring up one thing. The only reason this movie isn't a five out of five for me, because it is fucking close. I mean, it's a great movie. The Gary Cole stuff at the end seems just to be a little too far-fetched, where he's this killer that's posing as an FBI agent and blah, 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 and she figures it out. And it's just, it's a little too much for me. I think you could have still had the same sort of ending in a different way, like maybe Bill Paxson kills the FBI agents and the sheriff or something. I don't think you needed to throw that other element into it as well. And I think the trouble is, like, with that ending you're suggesting, I don't think you get the specific poignant ending you're talking about. I don't think without that. No, I think... no, but then you didn't need it either, though. Well, I guess what I'm saying is if they wanted to throw the FBI into it, there you go. But I don't even think the FBI thing needed to be a thing. I think just the sheriff could have been a thing. Well, even then, I like the tension that that builds up, or even like that. Without that, we wouldn't have the great phone call where Bridget Fonda comes in, just like, "Hey, Tim, it's 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 not that fucking FBI agent. He's not like," which is so wonderfully put together. And then, especially the, I like that how it also establishes the fact that like the sheriff character is so unassuming. We're just like, oh, I, I know he's so bad. he's so good too. Right, he's another guy. He's been in a bunch of Sam Raimi things, and he's Harris from fucking Major League. Chelsea Ross. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. Um, but, you know, another thing that I honestly that I think would have worked fine, have the FBI agent fine, have her make the phone call that, but have it where she's lying to him. So he'll just come back and then just have a horrible another sequence of events where the FBI agent really was an FBI agent. That honestly, I think if there's an actual FBI agent, then that ends. I don't think you can, quote unquote, like cover this up nearly as well still. Yeah. Like, if it's an actual maybe. FBI agent. I think the Gary Cole thing, I, I think it, it works well enough. Nothing else because. I think Gary Cole is always a great, reliable character actor. And I love the way that he also plays that bluster where he's just like kind of like standing off to the side and have a lot of lines. And he's just like, oh, yeah, no problem. I can show you my badge. And he pulls out that gun and shit like that. And he's a really I, good heavy in this, yes. though. He is a good heavy. You might know him for as like the office space boss guy, amongst other Yeah, things. yeah. Or, or, or uh, Mike Brady from the Brady Bunch movies. Yeah, <laughs> the so da- yeah, the dad in Talladega Nights and stuff yes. like that. Right, great yeah. character actor. And yeah. I just. Um, with to kind of segue into this being a Raimi movie, I think that guy works so well as just um, this unassuming person who's in the background. He's kind of like um, one of those people who turns into Deadites in an Evil Dead movie, where it's just like he's just sitting there unassuming. You don't think of anything, and then once the reveals start happening and the tension starts building up, Raimi gets to very muted versions of his tricks where I love particularly like the back and forth shots of like, say um, in that scene at the sheriff's office where it's like to Bill Paxton on the phone and Gary Cole and uh, the sheriff guy, like looking at him or even earlier on the scene where Becky Ann Baker and um, Lou, like their death scenes, like those are so tension filled and have the editing almost of like an evil dead sequence, but he doesn't go too far with it. The only part that's really Raimi-esque in that scene to me where it's like, oh, this is Sam Raimi, is the shotgun blast on her and how yes. far back she goes sailing. Other than that, it's such an interesting movie for him. Like you said, it, it is very Cone-esque. It's very, um, 
you know, blood simple like and, and things like that. It's definitely got that sort of storytelling to it. Uh, like you said, Fargo, all that stuff, but it does not come across like a rip, like you said, and I agree with that. There's also, because of the Sam Raimi of it all, even though it's not incredibly definably Sam Raimi, there's something special about it. Like there's definitely a different eye to this type of story and the way it's being told. And it's what sort of makes the movie work so well. It's not just a cut and dry thriller movie. Like there's just so many different weird turns subtle turns that it takes that maybe wouldn't happen if anybody else did it. Yeah, I, I feel like the Mike Nichols or John Borman version of this movie would be more of what we're talking about. It would have been good, but it would have been much more of like a good. Thread. Yeah, it would have just been so straightforward. Right. Where this, even the way he plays with some of the camera shots and the camera angles and things like that, make it something so different. Um, but at the same time, I think he also knows where, okay, I want to like pull back a bit so I can mm-hmm. like really establish the makeup of this town. So then when I do go slightly kilter, and, but not far enough to where it feels just like, oh, I'm just doing my Evil Dead tricks, it right. matters. It really hurts, like the Becky Ann Baker thing. Like, honestly, the one point where it feels kind of ramy in a way that feels slightly distracting, it's only really for, like, a couple shots when this happens. But there's a point early on when uh, Bill Paxton goes into the airplane to get the uh, the money out, when he finds the money and everything, where the crows start attacking him. And that feels the most Evil Daddy. Particularly, there's a shot where, for some reason, I guess because they had the actual crows, they have an animatronic Bill Paxton there. And, like, there's a shot where you can really tell. And it's, like, a bad animatronic Bill Paxton. <laughs> That's, like, the only issue really I have with that, this movie is that particular sequence. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. Well, yeah, let's go ahead and, I guess, uh, transition into final thoughts here. Adam, your final thoughts on A Simple Plan. Uh, you know, like we said, it's unlike anything he's really done... Uh, I mean, I'd say maybe closest to it would be The Gift, uh, mm-hmm. but this is a better movie than that. Written I mean, by obviously. Billy Bob Thornton, interestingly enough. Yeah, yeah. To me, this is probably, I know he won for Sling Blade and, you know, Monster's Ball, he's great in and everything too, but this is my favorite Billy Bob Thornton performance. It's one of Bill Paxson's best performances. Um, it, it's just, it's, it's a great great movie uh i absolutely love it I, this is the first time i've seen it in years and years and years and years it just always stuck with me so when i had the opportunity to you know put it up for the show I, I really did it and also the reason this movie's endeared itself to me so much is obviously i was a big raimi fan i loved you know evil dead army of darkness um so when this movie came out i was super excited to watch it and I watched it with my mom, who does not like genre films, like horror or anything like that. And this is one of her favorite movies of all time. So just for the fact that, you know, it's like a Sam Raimi movie that my mom and I both love. It, it's, it's a pretty cool, pretty cool thing. And this, this is definitely one of his only movies, I would say, that I think you can have that with. I think you can have people who are Sam Raimi fans, genre fans, and also people who don't really know him or maybe like horror watch this and really you know, respect the the direction and the art to it. What are you talking about? Watch Army of Darkness with your mom. She'll love it. I did. She <laughs> laughed. She laughed at a couple times, but okay. You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, yeah, I think uh, this one's definitely it's his most underrated. I would say for sure. I think it's a phenomenal uh, turn from like Raimi in terms of just like getting to do like some of his like sort of Raimi isms, but also muting it and knowing like not to go too far with it. And I think he does such a great job of that here with just like really helping along these stellar actors and just 
putting out this movie that feels so unlike Raimi, but at the same time feels like it could only be done in this particular way by a Raimi, like you mentioned. It feels so much like no other director could quite make this version of this movie, which even then is like, you know, it's very unlike Raimi, but still has a few, just enough of his kind of touches, enough of his especially like love of collaboration. Like I saw a great interview with Billy Bob Thornton about this movie, talking about how he's such a great collaborator in terms of he knows what's right for the movie and wants to take suggestions from people, but at the same time is willing to cut that if it doesn't quite fit the story. And doesn't quite fit like what's supposed to happen for this particular movie, and I think he does such a you know a great job of that, and it proves it can translate from just the weird run of Army of Darkness, The Quick and the Dead, and this movie. Like no other director can have like such a weird like left right zigzag anywhere turns like a Raimi can with those three movies alone. But let's go ahead and get into our bad feature, one that more people may have seen and are aware of. Spider-Man 3. So Spider-Man 3 came out uh, May 4th, 2007, and is, uh, of course, the third in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. So before we even get into this movie, Adam, uh, we should briefly at least talk about what we think of the first Spider-Man in 2002 and then the second Spider-Man in 2004. Um, what do you think of those two, Adam, especially given their huge context in terms of, like, big-budget superhero movies? Uh, how Do you think they still hold up pretty well now? Uh, maybe not the first one so much. I still think it's a solid, solid movie. I will say the first Spider-Man is one of the most important sort of blockbuster comp as far as comic book movies of all time. Um, I've always made the adage where, you know, sort of Blade kind of opened the door, X-Men walked in the room, and then Spider-Man flipped the fucking table. Like, it, it just, it started this, what we have now. I, I'd say without the first Spider-Man, it, it, we wouldn't have the explosion that we we have with sort of comic book movies in general or just blockbuster movies in general i would argue yeah blockbuster movies uh so for that i i definitely respect it and i i think it it's do all that respect uh i think spider-man 2 is uh damn near perfection um i i think it's just an absolutely fantastic movie um uh, blockbuster comic book or not uh i think it's just filled with just great moments funny really funny at times great action wonderful performances especially you know melina of course um it's just it's just one of the best it is so so good uh man we'll get to the next one here in a minute but what about you there butthole well, such a term of endearment. Um, I mean, the, the Spider-Man movies are very crucial for me in terms of, like, they are definitely movies I fondly remember from my childhood. Like, the first Spider-Man, as, like, a young kid, was just, like, an event. 
it was so massive to me and i was like so stunned at the time just like wow i can't like because that was spider-man was like one of the few comic book characters i knew as a kid because obviously spider-man everybody has like spider-man underwear or whatever shit when they're like ages three to eight years old shit i'm 38 but you're wearing Spider-Man underwear right now. That's all you're wearing. I can't. But I'm rocking. I'm rocking the Scarlet Spider on my donger right now. Well, that, that shows maturity. As yeah, person. only Ben. Only Ben Riley underwear for me. <laughs> uh, but but yeah. Um. I, so the first Spider-Man I I loved as a kid, and now I agree that like there's definitely signs just like it being very 2002, and there's some corniness to it. But at the same time, there's a lot of charm that's still there. Um, and then Spider-Man 2, I agree, is like near perfect still. I've, I rewatched both of those right before we are, did this episode. And still, like, I think there's so much entertainment value out of that. And just seeing, like, just going back to those movies and seeing Raimi kind of like have this clear voice that's still there with within a comic book big studio blockbuster and have like so many of the great propulsive action sequences even like when cg is utilized in those movies it still holds up remarkably well despite the fact that there's clear like roughness around those edges um and you know especially after spider-man no way home it's weird going back to those movies and it's just like oh these same people remember when they didn't feel like they were covered in cg goop and we're just kind of like phoning it in basically but then we have 3 come out in 2007, and 3 was definitely a film, when it came out, that sort of got a lot of that sort of fan backlash, because obviously those first two movies were so beloved and such massive successes, and this third one did very well, $904 million worldwide over gross, so pretty well, but it definitely suffered from a lot of studio hands and had a lot of issues, like Raimi's even said himself that he wasn't a fan of, particularly a certain character, as he popped up in here. But do you think it maybe deserves the huge hatred it got, especially around that time of like, oh my god, it's so awful, it's one of the worst comic movies ever. Now, so many years later, does it still deserve that mantle, Adam? You know, it's a, it's a funny thing. I still really don't like this movie quite, by, by a lot. Like, I still think it's pretty terrible. But after sort of, uh, you know, again, we've mentioned on the show several times, you and I have done movie nights, and we went through and rewatched these and the Andrew Garfield ones. I would probably take this over either of the Andrew Garfield ones and especially these like sort of 3.1 or 3.5 or whatever it was edition or the editor's cut, the editor's cut. Yeah. The editor's cut where they went in and fixed a lot of the problems I had with the theatrical cut Two in particular, two main problems I had and they went in and changed it and it still doesn't make it a great movie, but it makes it a much more serviceable film. So if I were, you know, like even for this episode, I watched that version. I won't watch the theatrical one again, but I will watch the editor's cut one, you know, occasionally from time, maybe every couple years. I, I think it's pretty solid. Yeah, um, I did rewatch the theatrical cut for this because I watched the editor's cut with you when we did that movie night thing. And I do agree it's a, at least a slightly better movie, but I still maintain, like, I had this thought even when it originally came out. And I've still kind of felt this consistently since, like, you know, 2007 all the way to now. I think Spider-Man 3 is just a very mixed bag of a movie. I wouldn't consider it nearly as bad as its kind of reputation has made out to be. I think it definitely suffers from just, like, being overstuffed. That's the biggest crime of this movie. Is like, Alvin Sargent even said this when he was writing the original version of this, that he was considering splitting it into two different drafts. Like, two different movies, basically. And honestly, I think that's the way to go, because, like, with the other Spider-Man movies, they were able to juggle so many different storylines and even multiple villains and stuff like that. But they were able to do so while still keeping, like, Peter Parker, MJ, and even Harry Osborn so much more central. As opposed to this movie has the trouble of, like, 
they'll go long stretches without going back to characters to the point where you almost forget certain people are involved. Like, particularly Sandman, I think, suffers a lot from that, who I think is, like, the best of the villains here. I think the Thomas Hayden Church is very good in that part. I think some of the best, like, sort of moments of these action sequences and even the emotional moments with him and his daughter are all on Sandman. Uh, but then he'll, like, disappear for a while, so we focus on one other plot, then another plot, and then, oh, hey, there's Sandman again. Hi, Sandman. <laughs> and that was one of my biggest problems. Like, that, I, we talked about it then. That was one of my biggest sort of, uh, issues with the theatrical cut is where Sandman disappears, and I, I, I think Thomas Hayden Church is fine. I think the Sandman character as a whole is kind of a lame character, but you know they do the best they can with it. And he's he's good in the role. It, it, the effects work. He, he's a decent foil. He's not pure evil. Like he's got a reason for doing what he's doing. But like you know, I would argue Norman was pure evil. You know, Green Goblin's pure evil. Uh, Otto uh, unfortunately becomes pure evil because of the sort of AI taking over. But, 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 but even then he like has a bit of a redemption by the end of that movie. Right? By the end of it, Sandman, but he Sandman starts off being redeemable. Like not necessarily redeemable, but understandable. Like, dude, he just wants to see his kid. Like his kid's sick. He's trying to provide for his kid, help his kid, whatever he can do. Um, you know, the, the throne and uncle Ben thing is kind of their way to be like, no, he's bad. But he, yeah. So he disappears for, what a good half hour 40 minutes before you see him again and the scene you get is him and an alley for the end of the line spider-man that's in the very next time you see him and you're like wait a minute what what happened here why all of a sudden is he now is he back and now he's hunting spider-man that's one of my favorite things the editor cut did where they give him a scene in between those two his uh disappearance and that moment where they give it a give him a reason for doing it yeah, there's a scene, if you're unaware, folks, where um, basically his kid is at the park with the mom and they're like walking around and all of a sudden the, the kid sees a sandcastle form and there's a bit where his hand pops up and like she touches the hand. Basically, it's a beautiful little scene. And I'm like, why the fuck did we cut this? This is like great. I have <laughs> like, no crucial. Idea. Yeah, incredibly yeah. crucial. Right. But no, we kept in the I cleaned your father's wounds that night, blah, blah, blah. Which, right. by the way, hey, returning actor, but from the first previous movie to this one. Yeah, John Paxson, who was Bill Paxson's father. Yeah, he was the sort of curmudgeon customer in Simple Plan. Right, which, by the way, I, this was a trivia fact I didn't mention was a Simple Plan. Apparently, Raimi hired him without Bill Paxson knowing, and they didn't know until they met on set that day that they were, like, in the same movie. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so funny. And he played that butler in like all three of those Spider-Man movies. And I think he's also an uh -huh. on-screen powerful. He's a Raimi staple of this lighter period in particular. Yeah, um, but anyway, absolutely. but yeah. yeah, that sequence you're talking about, they also changed in the editor's version to a much better sequence where it's just uh, Harry looking at a photo as opposed to, uh, he was hit by your father's glider. <laughs> they were self-inflicted wounds. Like how the fuck would this guy know that? <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right. To, even with like the, the original cut, I still feel this but like to go back to the Sandman thing, you, you mentioned the effects kind of being like serviceable. I think the like Sandman special effects are some of the best examples of how to utilize CG in like a blockbuster of the 21st century, honestly. Because there's a whole sequence after he trans like it's in the park accelerator or whatever when he gets back up is such a beautiful example of like how to use CG technology. 
to really get the idea of like a character like reforming basically i love that i love the physics of the sand in general throughout the whole movie i think it's such a stellar example of like how to like turn that character like okay he can transform the sand how do we use that and they use it with like a bunch of like cg effects even practical effects like when spider-man punches through him and they actually use like an amputee in a spider-man suit and shit like that. I think the Sandman is such a great sort of like technical marvel for this movie. Yeah, no, I, I guess by serviceable, I, I, you know, I might have done it a little dirty. Uh, it may be serviceable by today's standards, but at the time, yeah, it, it's great. Uh, I mean, the Sandman CGI is uh, the best in the film. I'd argue even over the Spider-Man web singing because uh, it looks just a little too polished in this one. And the Venom shit is ridiculous. Right, yeah. That, the, I think that's the thing, is you say, like, oh, by even that standard back then, I think even considering modern-day standards with Sandman, like, the the CG has weight to it. Like, it's in such interesting contrast to the Venom CG, which feels so much more, like, modern, big block, but it's just, like, there's no weight. There's no life to it. Most likely because Sam Raimi didn't want fucking Venom in this movie, very famously. And anytime him or Topher Grace Eddie Brock shows up, you can tell, just like, this is a contractual obligation, I have to have him here. <laughs> And it's so obvious. He's just like, he does not give a flying fuck about this character. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's just, he, he, you could tell the studio was like, nope, you're going to do it. You're going to do it. And because uh, I even remember the whole thing where it was like, um, you know, Sam, Sam Raby, like pre- you know, this movie coming out and people were talking about the third one and like, oh, are you going to do Venom? Are you going to do Venom? And he's like, I don't really want to do the Venom character. Like, right, he originally not... wanted to do Vulture and have Ben Kingsley play him. John Malkovich. Well, no, John Malkovich was going to be what he was going to do for Spider-Man 4. Oh, okay, Like, for okay. this movie, he had originally envisioned Ben Kingsley, who I think would have been a much better contrast to Thomas Hainchurch Sandman. I think that would have been a much better choice to, like, have these two villains who are somewhat human, but one has, like, clear, like, a Ben Kingsley versus a Hayden Church, more of a blue-collar guy. Would work so much better than just, like, Thomas Hayden Church, blue-collar guy, and asshole dude with, like, fucking frosted tips, Eddie Brock, <laughs> I guess? What's yeah. his character? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, exactly. And, and, but it's just, like, you know, it's it's so obvious that they made him throw this in and then he comes out like no that was my intention all the time to do it but like in the very beginning of the press tour i i just i hate that he got saddled with having to do this it just because he doesn't care and it takes up so much screen time and yeah eddie brock like his whole thing is is what like what what makes him so evil well he doctored that photo he has no journalistic integrity yeah there you go that means he is a murderer. <laughs> and, and, and he wants to pray to God for Peter Parker to die uh, and shit like that. Yeah. Like, honestly, but lousy. the thing is, I think all the Eddie Brock stuff is where is like the worst stuff in the movie, as opposed to, I think they do a lot of a better job with, say, like um, Kirsten Dunst's Mary Jane in this movie, because the more of the emotional crux of this movie is about after the second movie, where she's like, oh, I left my uh, fiance at the altar to be with you. And it's actually about, like, well, what if you had to live with Spider-Man and you had to, like, try and have a normal career and try and do your shit where, like, her, like, whole thing about being a Broadway star is failing and seeing him go up. And every time she tries to talk to Peter, it's all about, like, well, I, I totally get where you're coming from because it relates to me being Spider-Man. It's like, it's not a fucking about that. We're in the middle of a relationship. <laughs> like, this is an actual crisis we're having as a couple and you're just, like, not even bothering to really empathize. I think they do a much better job with her 
throughout this movie than honestly even one or two did. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can agree there. There's a couple very cringe moments. Uh, like you said, her fucking Franco dancing to the twist and all that stuff. Like, it's so stupid. But yeah, no, you, you kind of feel bad for her. Like, she's ne- the thing is, too, because I remember a lot of people were like, when this movie came out, like, oh, Jesus, man, she knew he was Spider-Man. Like, what the fuck? Like, hey, gee, oh, go now you're upset? You've been with well, you know, the thing is, I, it's not that she's not accepting that he's Spider-Man and, and he has a responsibility and stuff, but, you know, maybe she'd like to be included in his day-to-day at some point and, and maybe just not at all be about him being Spider-Man all the time. And, right, because they're still in a relationship. They still are, like, trying to make this work to some degree. Yeah, it's completely a human thing. Like, I, right. yeah, absolutely. And it, and it makes and, him so much more interesting. But it also makes him so much more douchey too like when he does the Bryce Dallas Howard kiss and all that stuff you're like oh what a dickhead well right but I, I like the idea that like the the conflict in these previous movies was like oh Peter Parker doesn't have anything going for him because like even everybody is like kind of back and forth about Spider-Man all this stuff the idea that like people are so much more behind Spider-Man here and that Peter Parker like has a win so he ends up making that be his losing moment basically it's just like oh I'm so swept up in being Spider-Man everyone thinks I'm awesome this is great I think that's also a human thing that he'd be so swept up in that yeah. that he doesn't consider Mary Jane at the same time I think that makes him like once again more interesting and nuanced than some of the other movies have portrayed him as well isn't that something that categorically happens all the time with people when they find fame Right. You know, they sort of forget the people who are there for them. They sort of just act out in different ways, not necessarily aggressive ways, but they just completely change their ego. Like, oh, finally, people realize how awesome I am and blah, blah, blah. And that's what's happening with Peter. Like, he's become cocky and, and I'm unfuckwittable and everybody loves me finally and nobody's bullying me anymore. And Right, which, which feeds into even him having the suit, which was also another big, like, fan issue of just like he gets the suit and he acts like that why would he act like that just like that's exactly what peter parker would act like if he got that fucking suit because he's a fucking nerdy idiot (laughs) and i never thought of it that way until actually watching it with you and talking about it Mm -hmm. and you're 100 on on point there that's what he thinks is cool yes you know and the thing is i didn't even notice it while watching the movie the first time and everything because i was just so like what is he doing but if you watch the movie and you really watch like when he's walking down the street he's doing finger guns at the girls he's dancing they're all looking back at him like who is this fucking idiot <laughs> yeah like not like, a one none of them are like oh hell yeah they're all like oh god what the fuck like nobody's into it but him Raimi knew we had to put in venom to some degree so he was like well the symbiote we can introduce and he's playing with that in i think an interesting way in a way that's like somewhat funny but also is feeding into this thing we're talking about where he's so like full of himself and he's ignoring the people around him i think if you had just made that way more like we don't have venom eddie brock at all and we just yeah. have more of like him in that suit and that struggle and maybe you save that for some other fucking movie or whatever you didn't but you wouldn't even need the suit then that's the thing and I, and I think they could have done it even without the suit where Spider-Man just becomes, Peter Parker becomes so cocksure of himself and so egotistical that he starts to alienate everyone. Right, I mean, you could do that in theory, but I like even Raimi putting that on as almost like, this is like the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man version of having like an evil Ash, basically. <laughs> is this like evil, quote unquote, Spider-Man? I think that it works to even have like that symbiote as like a thing that's accentuating all those things and putting it up to a certain degree. And I think if you would, like, dealt with that a lot more and have something like, there's, uh, the big jazz number happens, which is silly, over the top, oh, yeah. in the Sam Randy way. 
But Slaps that, Mary Jane. Right. Having that slap happen, my biggest problem is that, like, we should have really have him actually deal with the consequences of that. But right afterward, he gives up the suit, and then we get Eddie covered in the suit. And that, like, doesn't matter quite as much after that point. Because then Mary Jane gets kidnapped again. Like, the third time in these fucking movies. And, like, that's, like, where I really start losing on the movie is, like, the big climactic fight scene because that feels like the most kind of like uh-huh. together it's easily the worst of the action beats and even having harry who also has a whole storyline in this movie where he has amnesia we haven't talked about oh yeah oh yeah just the ending sort of dialogue between him and harry during the climactic scene it's just so dumb hey buddy i got you buddy yeah. yes go get her friend and you're like right. oh, what was they fucking from canada what is happening here <laughs> <laughs> like it's just it's so dumb yeah not helped at all by like obviously you know since this movie we found out that james frank was a piece of shit but more how is that a sh- wait, hold on though hold on though was anybody surprised by that because i yeah, i'm not surprised by not surprised yeah. by that necessarily but also i think even in like the earlier movies he's like solid fine in them um the first one before- the first one i think he's fine as Harry. I think he starts to get a little bit ridiculous in the second one, and then in this one, it's out of control. This one, it's like, he he just realized, like, oh, wait, Toby's been making, like, weird faces this whole time? I gotta catch up! Yeah, <laughs> I gotta my ca- turn! I have to make up for two movies where I couldn't make mugging faces, because especially the whole bit where they're at the diner, he talks about, like, I'm the other guy. And uh, he, like, does, he eats the pie, just like, How's it's so pie? good. <laughs> so good. And then I love when, like, Peter looks back in the diner and he's just like, hey, Blade, what's up? The truck goes by and he leaves. But particularly because there's an extra who was, like, behind James Franco who literally looks over after the truck goes by and looks like, just like, wait, what? Where'd that guy go? Yeah, right, what the fuck? Oh, <laughs> he was watching it happen. Or is he's, like, looking at Harry underneath the table. Like, shh, shh, <laughs> don't tell him. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's like the whole scene with Kristen Dunst here. She's like, you know, God, I wish someone would just bop me on the head. He's like, bop. <laughs> it takes that big bite of cotton candy. You're like, what the fuck is happening with this guy? <laughs> like, I understand, he, I understand he has amnesia, but why did he become like a giant man-child? Like, Particularly the scene where he's in the hospital bed. And, like, Toby oh. McGuire and Kristen Dunst come up to him. And they're just like, hey, buddy, what's up? Ah, uh, hey, man. We're such good friends, right? Yeah, we're best friends. It's <laughs> <laughs> so bad. It's so dumb. And, and it's a it's a troubling, because, like, I really like at the end of Spider-Man 2 that whole, like, cliffhanger of just, like, oh, we're going to have, like, him face off against Peter, and it's going to be this big confrontation. And admittingly, I think the best sequence with Franco is, like, the first big action scene of the movie, where they, like, fight each other in the middle. But of- I hate his suit. I don't I like his suit that much. I hate it. He looks like an ex-gamer. Right. It, it, <laughs> it really makes you look back at the fucking Power Ranger suit from the first one with respect. Oh, yeah. You're like, oh, that wasn't that bad. That was a bad comparison. But even then, like, I, I love the way that, that whole sequence is staged where it's like, he's even in his bad suit. You got him in the suit versus uh, Toby in, like, an actual, like, suit and tie having to try and fight like spider-man and stuff like with the ring having to like catch it with mm-hmm. the web and stuff like that i love how that whole sequence is staged um it's just a shame that after that it becomes once again like the amnesia thing which you know for a comic book movie i'm fine with doing an amnesia storyline but it's just so bizarrely handled where with the funny franco things and how once again another character beat that like is gone for a solid 30 minutes like in the second act of this movie if not longer honestly yeah. 
And also, this movie's like two hours and 20 minutes long, and you feel that. Oh, it drudges on. Oh, definitely. There's a lot of, like, sort of the early points of, like, blockbuster bloat we get more of now. Uh-huh. Sort of originating in this particular movie. The difference is now we had another 20 minutes to it. <laughs> and more universe-building bullshit in the middle of it. Yeah. And, and none of it builds to a universe that's fascinating. The thing is, like, yes, there might have been a projected fourth one, like they were going to try to do it with Raimi, and I think it was Anne Hathaway as the Black Cat, and John Malkovich as the Vulture, and blah, blah, blah. But even before knowing that, you know, that was in the cards, watching this movie, it feels like the end. Even at the theater, I'm like, oh, this is the last one. Yeah, I mean, you, you could have potentially seen more, but at the same time, I do like the very final note this movie leaves like MJ and uh, Peter on of him going back to the club and then kind of having that hug that uh-huh. in, could be conceived as like, Oh, it, it's like a big happy ending, but the looks on their faces clearly indicate like, Oh, okay. This is like, they have to work on whatever their relationship is after this. Movie. Yeah. This, this is not like they have so much to rebuild after all this happened. I like kind of leaving it there as opposed to, you know, having Spider-Man no way home, say Tobey Maguire, too. Like, oh yeah, we got together again. We were happy. Yeah. Didn't that add so much? Yeah. 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 So I, I guess also <laughs> like we, we we mentioned obviously like some of those issues. What do you think of the action sequences here? You know, the thing is, I like the idea behind the opening action bit with him and Harry. I like the Sandman, you know, armored car bit and all that stuff. I think it's really solid. Um, I, I do not give two shits about the crane scene with Bryce Dallas Howard because I don't care about the Gwen Stacy character. So, you know, maybe the action might be good, but I don't care about any of the characters involved. So to me, it has no emotional weight to it. Like it doesn't matter to me. And I do not like the final climax action bit at all. Yeah. I agree definitely about the final climax action beat. That's not my favorite, but at the same time with like the, that sequence, like I agree that, you know, Gwen Stacy isn't the most developed character obviously in this movie, but I think Raimi at least respects her enough to especially like, as we go along with the movie, they understand that she's being treated as a pawn and they give her even a moment. Just like, you're just using me as a fucking bit player in your thing. How dare you do that to me? And I think that initial opening sequence does uh, with her on the, does such a great job of establishing just like, once again, how like Spider-Man is perceived here, where it's just like, oh, there's like this big elaborate crane mishap that happens. It's so propulsively put together, like particularly when he's like going down, like falling chunks of the building and he's like pushing himself forward and shit like that. It's so masterfully put together that even if like Gwen Stacy's kind of thin, I still am like so enthralled by that whole sequence. And it's a combination of like some like blue screen stuff and model work and all this other stuff. I think it's, I, I really just miss action sequences that don't feel pre so much and going back to this and it feels like oh my god even if like the characters are kind of thin there's still so much actual craft being put in here by Raimi that I I, I don't give two shits <laughs> if like the characters are a bit thin I'm still invested in this action beat well agree to disagree that's the way the popcorn pops that's the way the popcorn pops our catchphrase um but but yeah I guess so do you think this deserves so much hate overall do you think it's like um in the grand scheme of comic book movies do you think this one deserves as much of like the infamy that's attached to it? Or do you think people need to give it a bit more of a revisit? No, it doesn't deserve the hate, but I don't even know that it needs a revisit. I think it's just, 
find where it is. You don't need to go back to it if you don't want to, but it, there's been so much worse that has come out prior and since. Like, it's it's fine. It is what it is. You don't have to, you know, curse its name or whatever. And it's it just, so what? It, it, it's silly. There, You might not agree with a lot of the character decision stuff. I don't. I don't like the movie, but it's not like I get angry about it. And I think that's just a kind of a silly thing that even this far on, people are still angry about this movie. Like, who cares? Honestly, who gives a shit? If you don't like it, you don't like it. That's fine. Watch the editor's cut. And if you still don't like it, that's fine, too. But it's still better than both of the Garfield ones. I mean, and a hot take, especially the first Garfield one. That movie is a fucking bore fest. I'd rather have this weird thing with Tobey Maguire jazz dancing and Topher Grace's Venom and all this batshit crazy decisions than a stale, bland bore fest. It's not that. I would never say this movie's a bore fest, but it's just, it's weird. It's just a weird movie that makes studio mandated decisions by a very capable director and that's what it is and hate it that's fine love it that's fine but it's not the worst by any means yeah i think that sort of thing it it fits as kind of like a weird opposite point to people who like overly praise any number of different like whether it's a Zack snyder superhero movie or like avengers endgame stuff like that it's like all the best like the greatest things in cinema possible the weird adverse is when comic book entitlement sort of makes people be like oh my god the worst affronts to cinema are the movies where they fuck up my favorite characters like spider-man 3 such garbage all these other ones like there are terrible comic book movies that kind of deserve like the oh some really bad blockbuster stuff like i would say x-men origins wolverine as an example which is like that's just an incompetently put together movie i have 100 percent. yeah 100%. versus this one has a lot of faults to it but i think it doesn't have any more faults than a lot of blockbusters do and the the bigger hot take i have honestly is i would take this movie over any of the fucking tom holland spider-man movies which i liked initially when i saw them and the more i've gone back to those movies the more they just kind of feel lifeless and stale and there isn't any kind of like earnest emotion to them as much as just like, we'll have fun gags. A couple interesting performances from people, I guess. But all the action sequences, any action sequence in this movie that isn't maybe like the final climax is better than any of the ones in any of the fucking Tom Holland Spider movies. Even No Way Home. I think like all those action sequences feel so much more lifeless and weightless and dull, even than Sam Raimi at his least in something like this. Even Sam Raimi at not his 100% game at all is better than John Watts at his fucking highest. That dude is such like a for-hire director who doesn't, who isn't able to add any kind of original voice to his fucking movies. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I guess any final thoughts possible on Spider-Man 3, Adam? Uh, not much, but if you really want to have a good time, you should download Raid Shadow Legends. Use our promo code SPIDERMAN3 and get 500 crystals, start off in the Elven map, the Elven Force, and get the special champion, Fatboy Slim. Oh, weapon of choice. That's Raid Shadow Legends. for sure. His weapon of choice. Um, for me with Spider-Man 3, yeah, I just feel like it's definitely not the worst Raimi movie. I feel like it's definitely sort of, I can see why this was the beginning of him, like, falling out of love with making movies to a certain degree because he only did drag me to hell and Oz the Great and powerful after this so you saw a bit more interest with like drag me to hell him going kind of going back to his roots 
only to kind of, you know, lose a lot of that with Oz the Great and Powerful. And I, it's it's a shame that this movie kind of hurt him and his ability to, like, kind of be a director again. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think this one has a few more charming bits and pieces. Like, even, we didn't talk about it that much. I don't mind the Uncle Ben retcon thing. Especially because it becomes more about, like, less of red kind of like, oh, it's actually Thomas Hayden Church did this as much as, like, Peter finally being able to let go of, like, the Uncle Ben thing by confronting Thomas Hayden Church, realizing, like, you know what? We all have, like, horrible things happen to us. I can forgive you, even, like, because it was you it was clearly an accident and all this other stuff. I, I like how they actually kind of, like, close the loop on that a bit here. Um, and there's, like, all the, some of the other stuff, despite, you know, kind of mixed execution, I think overall... Spider-Man 3, least of the Raimi Spider-Mans, but still fun. And still, I would say, the last, quite frankly, like, solid, watchable Spider-Man movie to me. Yeah, fuck Into the Spider-Verse. Correction, last watchable live-action Spider-Man movie to me. Gotcha! Yes. <laughs> Everyone said your hate mail to Thomas Mariotti and one of us that met, or whatever the fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, email that one. Go ahead. Yeah, go we won't ahead. get to send her anything. Do that. <laughs> uh, well, now it's time, Adam, to do our weekly segment of the Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double, 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 redo. That works. So the Double Redo is a segment where Adam and I talk about uh, basically movies that we uh, recommend or don't. We basically put up an alternate double edge double bill where we each recommend like a good and a bad one uh, to, you know, say, have you all watched or have you not watched related to the topic that we're covering. So in this case, Mr. Sam Raimi. And I'll go ahead and start here uh, with uh, my picks. Uh, My good one. I have is the movie he did right before Simple Plan, The Quick and the Dead from 1995, which, if you're unaware, is this Western action movie of sorts he did that basically follows uh, Sharon Stone as this main gunfighter who rides into this town that is in the middle of a shootout competition where you have, like, a bunch of people sign up to, like, compete in shootouts where they, like, shoot each other and whoever ultimately wins... Um, is able to, you know, basically uh, survive another day. And it's uh, headed by Gene Hackman, who is like the sort of evil sheriff of this town that Sharonston has a past issue with. But this cast is so stellar. Like, you got baby Leonardo DiCaprio's in it. Young Russell Crowe also pops up. Lance Henriksen, uh, Keith David. So many good genre staples. And it's Raimi being able to do his sort of, like, Evil Dead-isms within the Western genre in a way that's so fun, so stylish, so enjoyable. And you've got really solid terms, especially Sharon Stone. I think it's my favorite performance of hers. She is, like, such a wonderful, badass Western hero that comes into this. And she's not overly sexy sexualized at the same time they embrace her beauty but they don't like to over sexualize her in a way she's just a genuinely interesting fun character that you want to follow along and everybody's really enjoyable in it it's got a great alan silvestri score it's wonderfully shot so many great like shootout sequences of course an over-the-top gene hackman always fun to see um then my bad one i have is from about 10 years prior this is the movie that he did in between the first two evil dead movies i have crime wave which is sort of like a slapsticky crime movie that's written by the coen brothers uh this was back when they were like 
living together still, and Raimi was trying to sort of make his non-Evil Dead movie break out into studio filmmaking with a smaller budget than most studio films, but bigger than The Evil Dead, obviously. Um, and it feels like such a sophomore slump. There's a lot of interesting ideas at play, a lot of like cool setups for sequences, but none of them quite come together that well. And uh, there was a lot of issues with, like, Raimi kind of transitioning from a low-budget set to this one. You can kind of tell, because things just kind of, like, fall apart in terms of certain sequences he's trying to do. A lot of the performers are, like, really badly overdubbed or don't seem as invested. Um, and there's some bad, like, sort of matte work. I would only recommend it if you are a Raimi completionist, because it is an interesting kind of, like, middle ground between you can see where the guy who made The Evil Dead and the guy who made Evil Dead 2, where he kind of did a lot of trial and error in the middle. It's not his worst movie, necessarily. There's some fun bits and pieces to it, but it does not come together very well at all. I have never seen Crime Wave. It's one of those blank spots for me. Like, I know of it, and I've just never had the opportunity. Well, I guess that's not true. I've never sought it out. Uh, but it's definitely one I, I kind of want to see, just even just be a Raimi completionist. I think it might be one of, if not the only one of his I haven't seen. So, you know for that yeah check it out but uh yeah quick of the dead i love i'm not as crazy on the sharon stone performance i think she's fine i think she's serviceable but i think everyone around her is just chewing up the scenery i i think that movie is populated by some of my favorite character actors of all time uh yeah like you said you got a young leo you got a young russell crowe you got a, a over the top gene hackman you got pat hingle you got lance henrickson keith david I mean, it's just on and on and on. There's so many great performances in that movie. And it's just super fun. That's the one thing I will say about Quick and the Dead. I think Quick and the Dead is fun. Great, great Western. It's just, it's awesome. So for my good, I have uh, probably an obvious one. A lot of people think, and I, I might agree that the second of the franchise is the best one. But one that I will watch over any of them is Army of Darkness. I think Army of Darkness is just pure, stupid fun. Great one-liners, really fun practical effects, not necessarily that effective all the time, but still fun. Just this weird horror fantasy comedy that could only be done by Sam Raimi. Um, It's just, anytime it's on, I'll watch it. I watch it maybe once every six months, if not even more than that. Uh, I just have so much fun with it. And it was one of the first uh if not the first vhs tapes i bought with my own money so i mean i absolutely just have such nostalgia for it and the movie still holds up it's still fun it's still great uh it's not just all nostalgia love for it i I just think it's pure pure goofiness on such an epic level and for the bad i have which was uh thomas's alternate choice and it's bad for (laughs) several reasons uh oz the great and powerful not just the frank of it all uh it's the bad cgi it's the really weird casting it's the really bad makeup on mila kunis when she changes just weird decisions and it's ultimately just a boring boring movie you know the original wizard of oz you're not necessarily supposed to like the wizard when you first meet him uh, but you get the idea that maybe he's been there for so long and, and you do get some sympathy towards him near the end of the movie. This movie, you don't give a shit about him. He's a fucking jerk. And I, I just don't like him. I, I think it's just, it's a terrible, terrible CGI fest of a movie that it just had no business being made or given the budget it was. Yeah, um, Army of Darkness is great. It's my second favorite of those Evil Dead movies. Evil Dead 2 is just like a masterwork. It's just like a perfect horror comedy but army of darkness is also just so fascinating because 
oh yeah, he made this with like studio money. I think it's like twelve million dollars. Universal was like, sure, you made Dark Man, and that made us money. So why not let's do the third in a series of like cult movies? <laughs> Make the pay like so much studio money to have Bruce Campbell like fuck around with skeletons and do dumb like puns and stuff like and one liners and yeah, I'll cut your gizzard off. <laughs> oh yeah, so good, so so much fun. Even my favorite like line in that movie isn't even one that like it's quoted like I love like Hail the King baby or just like you know Jack and shit and Jack left town. But my favorite is there's a bit after all the stuff with the books happens and the army of the dead's raising and Ash comes back and everybody's like yeah you came back he's like yeah yeah whatever yeah yeah and he goes up to one guy who's just like oh you did it just like get the fuck out of my face yep yep my 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 favorite thing in the movie and i still do it to this day i even did it earlier tonight with uh my wife is when he wakes up after the little ashes attack him he's like hmm, what a horrible nightmare <laughs> wait a minute Oh God! <laughs> You're just such an idiot. Yep, it's really, really fun. Yeah, um, and then as the Green Purple, shameful admission. I remember I saw that movie in the theater and heard all the bad reviews. And coming out of that movie initially, I was in sort of like a hype of just like, oh my god, what is everyone talking about? It's a fun Sam Raimi movie, and it's the Wizard of Oz. It's great. And then I watched it again when it was on like cable or something. And it just all drenched me, like, oh my god, I just got in, like, a hype thing. It is so awful. <laughs> it is, like, easily his worst fucking movie. It is so dire. It's just, like, so much, like, weird studio bullshit, even more so than, like, a Spider-Man 3. And Franco's such terrible casting. I know they originally wanted Robert Downey Jr., who would have made so much more sense. Would have been a much better choice for that. Uh, Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> right. Everyone's favorite film, Doolittle. One of the highest grossing films of 2020, technically. It I is. Even though it flops horribly. It's so wild. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, Oz the Green Powerful, it definitely feels like, it, it, once again, that would have been such a bad last movie if Raimi didn't direct again. So at least he's not ending on that note, for sure. But uh, let's go ahead and repeat our titles here for everybody, in case you missed them. Uh, for me, uh, my good pick was The Quick and the Dead, and my bad pick was Crime Wave. And my good pick was Army of Darkness, and my bad was Oz the Great and Powerful. Yes, and please submit your double reduce suggestions to us uh, at some of the you know socials and stuff we'll mention here at the end of the show before we do our picking. Stay tuned for that at the very end. But we want to thank some people. Like Thank you to Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music for our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thorlally for our artwork. Uh, follow him at Night of Water. That's night with a K underscore of underscore water on Twitter and you'll find a link tree for all his various different places where you can uh, commission him and all sorts of stuff for art and of course thanks to our supporters on Patreon patreon.com slash dedbpod where for just $1 a month you all get to vote in polls so you can pick movies that we cover or topics that we cover and also listen to bonus podcasts like for example uh, shortly after this episode comes out You'll be able to vote for um, an upcoming episode where we're going back to Pixar films for the first time in quite a while. And you all get to choose between my two bad picks. Uh, it'll be between Brave, the uh, 2012 fantasy film that also had a troubled production of its own, and Cars 2, the major focus sequel to Cars. Oh, great. <laughs> Aren't you excited? I'm so excited. I'm so pumped. <laughs> Bader all the time, every day. Um, yeah, man. And then, 
And you'll also be able to listen to an audio commentary. We would have posted as like sort of the monthly big podcast thing that will be coming up, uh, you know, about a week or so after this is released. It was uh, it's the last big in-person recording that Adam and I did when I uh, went up to Michigan to hang out with him right after Doctor Strange and Multiverse of Madness has come out. You'll get to hear our commentary for another Marvel film, uh, Punisher Warzone. Which, if you haven't seen it, don't go in expecting like this is going to be great. Go in like like I want to have fun, and I think you will. Yeah, also, don't make our commentary the first time you watch it. <laughs> watch it without our commentary <laughs> first. No, watch it with our commentary, then recommend it to everybody. Well, become a patron, so you have the commentary handy, and you have given us your money, more importantly, and then watch it by its own, and then watch it with our commentary. That's the big way to do it. Yeah, talk about how good the commentary is to your friends. If they're like, oh, we should watch it, listen together. But like, well, the only way that works is if you guys become patrons, too. <laughs> oh, but we can't listen to your... No, you can't. No, fuck you. <laughs> We're dividing friendships with our Patreon. That's what we. That's the guarantee. Uh, Patreon.com slash DEDBpod. But uh, for more of us, you can uh, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. Submit feedback to us, uh, doubleedgedoubleville at gmail.com. I'll spell it out. And uh, for more of my own individual stuff, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxes at NotTheWho'sTommy. I also do some writing at uh, marianitomas.wordpress.com and at film-cred.com where uh, I believe at the time, either like right when this has been released or the week at least this has been released, I would have put out uh, a little article for the first time on film cred in a while um, about Sam Raimi's career. It's like a big retrospective about his whole career that I wrote up for them um, that I had a lot of fun writing. Nice. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore or underscore A-D-A-M. You can find me on Letterboxd at Schwanson. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. Or you can find me on Raid Shadow Legends at Goat Say Lightsaber. Once again, we're not sponsored by Raid Shadow Legends, but please, if you're listening, we know you are. Please. Yeah, come on, guys. Seriously. <laughs> We've been promoting you free for like a month. <laughs> help us out uh, well for more of us uh, in our audio antics uh, follow us on places like Apple Podcasts and Stitcher or wherever you get podcasts out there if you're listening on Talk Film Society why not listen to all the other great shows on the network uh, you can also dig into our archives and our Podbean main feed for like 200 episodes from before we even joined Talk Film Society and nothing else, if you can't support us on the Patreon, if your money's a bit tight, totally cool. The free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show out there to give us more visibility. Yeah, and we notice you guys who are doing it, and we really appreciate it, all of you. And Madam, not Christian Alvarez. Go fuck yourself. Asterisk. <laughs> not Christian. <laughs> not Christian Alvarez. Asterisk. <laughs> well, now, Adam, it's time we ended this episode. And, uh, you know, we talked about superheroes a bit. With our Spider-Man three discussion, uh, we'll be doing that again for a very uh, special episode uh, that'll be our big fourth anniversary special. Get the fuck out of here! Yep, four years. Can oh you boy. believe it? Uh, yes, I have felt every day. It's felt more like eight. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, in the past when we've done these, uh, we've kind of stuck to superheroes as like the anniversary thing because first ever episode was about Marvel in general. Our first anniversary was about the MCU. Our second anniversary was about uh, graphic novels. And then our third anniversary was about um, the non uh, Marvel or DC superhero adaptations. So now for the fourth one, 
we're doing cinematic original superheroes. So superheroes that were born of the silver screen, not based on anything. It's a fascinating topic. Yeah, there's some wacky shit out there, man. Especially on my end. Because, uh, yeah, the quality That's I true. pick. Oh, boy. You had the bad for this, and you have your two choices. You pick assigned number between 1 and 10 for. And I did have my two good choices, but uh, those were decided upon uh, by our patrons. Patreon.com slash GETVpod. Once again, you all voted between my two good choices. The Incredibles was one of them. And The Ultimate Winner, a movie we've been wanting to talk about for quite a while on the show. One of our favorites, mutually, Adam. RoboCop. Oh, yeah. I love me some RoboCop. I've said it before. I think it is the greatest 80s movie that exists. And you would agree with me. Like, there might be some debate about that. He is a cinematic superhero, right? You would classify him superhero-wise? He's Robot Jesus. Jesus is a superhero. Well, that's true. The original. Yeah. Number number one superhero, baby. (laughs) The first printing of the Bible. Oh, Jesus. He's number one. (laughs) <laughs> yes but now adam you have your two yeah. bad picks and you're yeah. chosen for both of them so i'm gonna choose number six all right at number seven i got hancock man oh boy i've been wanting to talk about hancock hancock is fascinating it's so bizarre yeah so at, at hancock and at number one i have cross starring brian austin green I've never even heard of this. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. So you dodged a bullet there. Well, wait, what, what is it, though? What is Cross? I have no idea what this is. He's an Irish Catholic superhero. Oh. Yeah. Okay. okay. Well, I'm looking at the poster now. I'm like, oof. Very glad we're not doing that. Jake Busey? Yeah, man. And, wait, and Billy Zapka? Oh. Yeah, yep. Oh, yeah. How'd they get these people? There's so a hell of a cast. I know. It's crazy. Oh, well, yeah, we'll have a lot more to talk about with Hancock. On that note, Adam, it's time uh, we ended this as, uh, you know, we only know how by dancing. Oh, I got ants in my pants and I need to dance. 